You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 23rd of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. An anxious world attempts to stop the Middle East from combusting any further. The women of one Nordic country go on strike and the extremely niche preference of one very dedicated German tourist. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Quentin Peel and Tessa Shishkovitz will discuss today's big stories. Plus, we'll visit the brand new Hauser and Wirth Gallery in Paris and there'll be a cameo appearance from the President of Iceland. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow with the Europe Programme at Chatham House, and by Tessa Shishkovitz, an Austrian journalist and author and the UK correspondent for the Austrian weekly magazine Falter. Welcome back, both of you, to the Monocle Daily. Good evening. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Tessa, you have recently, as I understand, been revisiting the ancestral home. Yes, as one does, as an Austrian. Went to Vienna, (laughs) ate some cake, shared some programmes there and came back. Uh, do even the Viennese go back to Vienna to eat cake? That just seems like the thing that only tourists would do. But interestingly, my children, for example, they uh, have been grown up on Sachertorte and that will never change. Quite right, too. Uh, Quentin, you have been travelling, but not quite as far afield. I've just been down to Cornwall, where I managed somehow to escape Storm Babette and didn't get blown off the cliffs. Had a glorious Sunday yesterday and uh, saw lots of floods as we came back on the train. Did the train not have to stop for floods in the tradition of British trains usually having to stop if there is a leaf on the line within a 400 kilometre radius? You might have thought so, but we whizzed past them. Well... Somebody's been lucky. Um, We will start uh, the show proper with the Israel-Hamas war and the hopes of outside parties that the situation doesn't find a way to get even worse than it already is. Last night, one of history's more momentous Zoom calls occurred, looping in the presidents of the United States and France, the prime ministers of Canada, Italy and the United Kingdom and the Chancellor of Germany. The official joint statement was a study in exactly what you would expect, support for Israel, but also support for international law pertaining to protection of civilians, etc. Quentin, was this the proverbial meeting that could have been an email? Yes, I think it was. I mean, they are they're completely hung up on this contradiction that they want to pledge all support to Israel, but Israel is the only the only tactics that Israel has is smash Hamas in the middle of a very densely populated uh, area of civilians. And so civilians are going to die. Um, Tessa, there is an impression forming that, well, as as Quentin is suggesting, while everybody, certainly everybody involved in this call is sympathetic to and supportive of Israel, they all are rather starting to wish that Israel would back off somewhat, aren't they? Well, I mean, also in Israel, a lot of people hope that there wouldn't be a ground offensive, which has started a tiny little bit now already um, last night. So there will be probably small incursions in any case coming now on the ground. The the problem is that a lot of people in Israel don't want to send in the army because it will cause a lot of um, victims on the Israeli side too. I mean, the, the tactical question of how to get 
the hostages back, not to kill Palestinian civilians, and also not get on the back foot in the sense that Israel thinks if it doesn't now do something against Hamas, then uh, everyone else will learn that it's an easy thing to hit Israel hard, as it did with this massacre on the 7th of October. And Israel, if Israel doesn't do anything against it, it won't be good for the longer term either. So I think there are just no good options at the moment. So for the international community, you could see this today at the meeting of the foreign ministers in Luxembourg, of the European foreign ministers, mm. that there's a lot of debate going on. They can't even, you know, there are a bit of divisions being uh, coming up now already now after two weeks of this war between Germany and Austria and also some of the other countries about how to push for humanitarian aid going in, what to do exactly. So it's going to be tough in the next weeks. Uh, Quentin, ongoing stampede as well of heads of government and or state to Israel. Uh, President Macron of France, Prime Minister Mark Rutte of the Netherlands, uh, either on their way or planning to go very, very shortly. What do we imagine they see as the value of turning up in person? Is it just to subject Benjamin Netanyahu to a barrage of the same message, i.e., please, can you think of another way to do this? I'm, for myself, really quite baffled as to why they all have to go, except for the symbolism, the mm. symbolism that we're on your side. But I think that probably um, the Israeli government has a lot better things to do than roll out the red carpet again and again and again for people who are coming with essentially the same message. President Biden did it first, um, got the message across, perhaps, um, saying, you know, we're on your side, but please don't go too hard. And all the others have simply repeated it as far as I can see. Uh, you alluded there, Tessa, to the fact that the much-anticipated ground offensive hasn't really started yet. And we are now, you know, well, we're getting on for, for 16 days after the original Hamas attack on Israel. Um, do you think it is possible, though, that one of the reasons it hasn't quite happened yet is because Netanyahu is getting a serial earful from all Israel's allies saying, please don't do this? It's very hard for me to say because I think nobody wants a ground offensive to happen because everyone knows that it might just create such a situation that Hezbollah really gets into this war and um, and the wider region just gets more and more drawn into this. Nobody's an interest in that, obviously. On the other hand, the support of the Western governments, as Quentin just said, you know, people come and show support to Israel. And I'm not sure that they are only saying, don't do it. You know, the way that the Germans speak, the way they are sort of offering some military help, even um, the way that the American president, you know, brought weapons already with him you know you don't have the feeling that it's so clear cut what the, what the advice to Netanyahu is and are some of these leaders, in fact, possibly all of these leaders, Quentin, concerned about their own domestic politics? Here in the UK, for example, huge demonstrations uh, in sympathy with Palestine uh, this weekend. I believe something broadly similar is planned for this weekend. Uh, Sunak has today announced a doubling of the UK's aid uh, to Palestine. I think that would be another 20 million quid. But is that starting to worry people as well, that this is making my life at home difficult? Difficult. 
I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, they are really, really worried about any um, spreading of the conflict in the mm. Middle East itself. And then the knock-on effect would indeed be to to actually pit communities against each other in their own countries. So look at Macron going today. He has the largest Muslim community in Europe and the largest Jewish community in Europe in France. So he is sitting on something of a volcano. I mean, just finally on this particular angle, Tessa, you said earlier that there are no good options here, which is absolutely assuredly the case. But is there a particular outcome from where we start now that the West should be working towards? Because Israel, I think, has made it fairly clear that it is no longer prepared to have Hamas living alongside it. And in light of what occurred earlier this month, that is not an unreasonable case uh, for Israel to make. So if, if Israel's Western allies accept that premise, is there an outcome that they could be trying to steer Israel towards? Well, there's a lot of this sort of strong words being said. Now, the reality is Hamas is not just a leadership. It's not just a militant group. It's not this and that. It's, it's you know, governing for 16 years in the Gaza Strip. There's a lot of people who support them and a lot of people who don't support them. But it will be very difficult just sort of this idea that you can eradicate Hamas is uh, out of the question. And if it is still there after the war in the people, if not in their tunnels, then you will have to somehow find a way to cooperate with the population, whatever government it has. And Israel knows that, of course, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, expel all these two million peoples to Egypt who also doesn't want the Gazans or doesn't want the responsibility for them. So this whole thing at the moment, we're in a situation where people do not speak a rational language and we'll have to probably wait until <clears throat> this first phase of the military um, uh, reaction of Israel is over to, to, to try to speak you know, to be a little bit more realistic about what's actually what the what the region needs, you know, what type of agreements could be found between the different leaders in the region, in the country itself, to make it bearable for everyone to live there. And I don't think that this Israeli government and Benjamin Netanyahu will be very open to this. And so we could hope that possibly this government will not be in power for very long. And on the other side, we'll see what happens also with the Hamas leadership in Gaza. But, you know, you need to really work in the international community towards building up strong leaderships that can actually have a possibility for a compromise between Israelis and Palestinians. Otherwise, this is just one more of this terrible, terrible escalations of violence without any political solution. Well, let's stick with the same story, but stir in an amount of the anguished hand-wringing navel-gazing of which the media is famously fond. The current conflict between Israel and Hamas has been a bracing demonstration of the reality of modern reporting, including the perils of going big on what something appears to be, rather than waiting to figure out what it actually is, the difficulties of passing the truth from the rival explanations of events presented by the protagonists, and having to figure all of this out in front of a screechingly partisan online audience hostile to any information which may contradict their prejudices. Um, Quentin, grand scheme of things, does it strike you that the last few weeks have been worse than usual for this kind of thing? 
Yes, I think uh, the, the the online distortions that we've seen blowing up the story, exactly as you say, for to confirm people's prejudices. They just want to know. And, uh, you know, the truth has not been in it. And, of course, that's hugely complicated for the journalists there. They can't get into Gaza uh, and report on the ground. There are some Palestinian journalists mm-hmm. who've still been able to do that. And, of course, what you do have, in a way countering the distortion is you do have incredibly dramatic pictures coming out where the suffering of Gaza and the destruction of all the facilities in Gaza and the plight of the of the civilians there is just day by day in a way um stirring up um, despair outside Israel as well as uh, in the Arab community, in the Arab and Muslim world. Because, Tessa, probably the most emblematic uh, example of this kind of thing so far certainly has been last week's uh, explosion at a hospital in Gaza. And instantly it was reported a a large section of the online realm, including um, public figures and politicians who one might hope would know better, uh, leapt with ghoulish glee upon the idea that this was a deliberate Israeli airstrike on a hospital uh, and ran with that. it's by no means, well, as it came out over you know, subsequent hours and days, by no means conclusive that that is actually what happened. Um, and certainly there is a large body of plausible opinion that says that this was, in fact, an Islamic Jihad rocket which fell short. And it wouldn't be the first time that had occurred. But is there anything news outlets can do when everybody is determined uh, to believe what they want to believe? Do news outlets now have to resign themselves to the fact that there's no value anymore in saying we were first with this and instead realising that the value might be, well, we're going to wait until we figure out what's actually happened before we tee off? Okay, so first of all, it is not 100% clear what happened. Indeed Even not. if the British Prime Minister already briefs that it was a rocket of Jihad Islami and not an Israeli rocket. Secondly, I don't think anyone deliberately targets uh, civilians here. So even the Israelis who are bombing uh, and trying to destroy Hamas infrastructure would not necessarily choose on purpose this front yard of the hospital where 500 people, according to the Hamas sources, have been killed. Uh, Thirdly, though, if you look at all the evidence, and I did in the last days because I was writing a story about it, you can see how flimsy, of course, all of it is. And our, as a media representative myself, of course, you think in a conflict where Israel is bombing the Gaza Strip, it is more likely that it's an Israeli rocket that hits civilians Mm -hmm. than the people bombing themselves within the Gaza Strip. But the evidence that we now saw could make could points to the fact that there was a rocket going wrong and, and did that within the Gaza Strip. But I would be very, very careful to point fingers or be, you know, you can always quote in a situation like this, you know, we, we as media, we have become part of the propaganda warfare, the information warfare since on social media, the truth runs away hmm. with you. Before you know it. So when the BBC says it looks as if it's an Israeli strike, then, of course, uh, you have a lot of people multiplying this uh, account. So people from credible news sources like the BBC have a hundred times more to be careful than, than we used to be to not 
insinuate things, which then will be taken immediately on social media and on Twitter and being turned into 100% truth. So it's very, very, very difficult now this to report. And then, of course, you're reporting from Gaza, uh, where you don't have even uh, electricity anymore to, to, mm -hmm. to have a, a phone to report on to anyone. So you have a few people, Palestinians who are still there. Can we expect them to keep their nerve in a situation like this when a whole a yard of children's bodies is around them not to blame um, the source of, of this crime. So it's very, very, very intense. And the mistakes that are being made uh, are have to be really also, you know, you have to, as a news editor, you have to be so, so careful not to let these things run away because it doesn't make it better if people get more and more uh, excited about these things and the counter criticism comes screaming in with all the volume of the mm. of the social media and so on so the bbc who i think on the whole their coverage has been remarkably good and you know very much in the tradition they have some wonderful correspondence there but in fact they're getting screamed at for the, you know the slightest mistake it it does take me back to thank god for the old days when we couldn't <laughs> get a story out for 3 days because you couldn't get a telephone line. You couldn't get a telex line. I mean, you know, I was in the depths of Angola once and it literally was three days when we could get out information about a South African bombing raid. It had its advantages. <laughs> it, did, it did have its advantages, but uh, unfortunately, I don't think uh, those days are coming back. So that being the case, Quentin, what does an organisation like the BBC now do uh, when there is a story like this, when something has clearly happened, nobody really knows what, everybody has decided what happened anyway in accordance with their own personal prejudices and the truth is is it not that even if you dedicated an entire research team and told them find out what happened find out what actually went on here it would take days weeks for them to come back with a definitive account even if it were possible by which time everybody has lost interest and moved on to the next thing i fear it's very boring to say but they've just got to stick to what they do best which is report what they know attribute it to who they know um and 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 therefore not try and reach a conclusion too quickly. You've just got to slow things down. But you know, I was also this morning, uh, Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat, mm -hmm. um, I was asking him if if their report is imminent on the rocket uh, investigation, because, you know, everyone is sort of would like to have a credible source, which Bellingcat usually is. And he says they're still analyzing. And I think we have to really also take that into account. It's sometimes better to understand that the truth in wars just takes its time to emerge and then as Quentin says just to to quote the different options and not to put yourself on one side and on the BBC I think you're so right also you can see how everyone from the left and from the right from the pro-Palestinian and the pro-Israeli camp everyone's attacking the BBC so that points to the fact that probably they are getting more or less the right <laughs> <laughs> the distance to our sides. Well, let's pivot abruptly north and look at Iceland, which tomorrow will have to get by without its women, up to and including the Prime Minister, who are going on strike. Thousands of Icelandic women are to walk off the job, whether paid or unpaid, in protest against an unclosed gender pay gap and depressingly widespread gender-based violence. It is a willful echo of a similar action in 1975, which prompted a law, the 
theoretically guaranteeing equal pay and led to the voting in of the world's first elected female president, Vigdis Finbogadottir, five years later. As luck would have it, just a few days ago, the team from Monocle Radio's The Foreign Desk swung by the Reykjavik residence of Iceland's current president, Gudni Johannesson, and among the things I asked President Johannesson was whether, on certain issues, small nations could have a disproportionately large global impact. To be sure, uh, there are some uh, cases where Iceland's voice can be and should be heard loud and clearly. We have a story to tell when it comes to some aspects of our society and our economy and our political views. I believe that uh, we can deliver a message that uh, needs to be delivered. Uh, Just take our story on gender equality. Uh, There's still work to be done in Iceland and there will be a strike here uh, on the 24th of October to commemorate uh, the fact that on the 24th of October in 1975, uh, almost 50 years ago, the women of Iceland just stopped working in the household, in the workplace, demonstrating their equal role and duties, if not more. So uh, for the last decade or more, Iceland has topped the World Economic Forum's uh, index when it comes to uh, gender equality. And we can tell the story that uh, gender equality is not only a human rights issue, the right to give everyone the potential to show what they're capable of, regardless of gender or any other parameters you will find, but also that it's a practical issue. If everyone in society is allowed to show their worth, then everyone will benefit. But let me reiterate that we haven't reached some gender equality paradise here, but we can demonstrate with facts that this has benefited Icelandic society and it should benefit other societies. That was President Gudni Johannesson of Iceland speaking to me at the clearly windswept uh, presidential residence in Reykjavik. There will be more from that interview in Saturday's edition of The Foreign Desk. Um, Tessa, to this strike planned for tomorrow, are you a fan of the gesture? Oh, I definitely am. I think it's wonderful that 25,000 people are expected to strike in Reykjavik. That's about a tenth of the entire population. Indeed so. That that is already something. And then also I like the idea that um, it's not that the women are taking in the non-binary people to go together to Mm -hmm. call for more equality. I think that's a very good and healthy approach, which would be very controversial in many countries, I think, in Europe. So this is, in my view, a progressive thing to do. Um, But I'm also astonished that in Iceland, I I wouldn't have expected these um, model uh, gender equality uh, people in the north to be, in fact, so high up on the the gender pay gap that you have 21% less in some professions I find quite astonishing. I looked at the um, general, the on the average in the EU, it's 12, 12.7% gender pay gap. And, and that's, that seems very high in Iceland. Uh, it, it, it does. It is. It's, it's, well, it's more than vaguely depressing, Quentin. It's very depressing that even in a country which, as the president said, is an absolute poster child uh, for this kind of stuff, there is still such work to be done. I think it shows what a, what a mountain is still to be climbed everywhere. And if Iceland is, is, is behind, I mean, the story astonishes me, partly because one does have the view that Iceland is another 
wonderfully egalitarian Nordic sort of society. But actually, maybe there's a, a whiff of the old Viking culture of a male-dominated world that has never gone away. There's also, I think, an important point here, Tessa, that they are reinforcing the value of unpaid work, which does fall disproportionately on women in Iceland uh, as elsewhere. Again, it does seem vaguely incredible that this is a point that needs to be made. I was reading up earlier on the 1975 women's strike and the widespread bewilderment that was occasioned by Icelandic fathers having to take their children into work because their wives had said them, no, strike means strike. I'm not doing anything today. Yeah, that's the lovely thing about strikes that people realise what is actually how important the work of striking people is. And that's why I think women in Europe, we should also go a little bit striking. I think it could could be fun and could show our value maybe or maybe not no <laughs> Tessa <laughs> not don't leave us in. yet <laughs> yes, if I go what will you do without me <laughs> uh, well we will doubtless come back to that story once we've seen how the strike goes uh, tomorrow and the day after but now to the United Kingdom it is one of Earth's most touristed countries and so it should be there's lots of stuff to see here especially your own stuff which the British may have nicked at some point it is fair to say however that few of the millions who descend upon on these sceptered isles have the dilapidated Yorkshire port of Hull high on their itinerary. One of its attractions, indeed, is a statue of its most famous son, the misanthropic poet Philip Larkin, which is situated at the main railway station and depicts him bolting for a train to London. However, one German tourist, it says here in the Hull Daily Mail, is atoning for the world's indifference. One Rainer Schmidt from northern Bavaria has holidayed in Hull every year since 1991 one staying every time at the same guest house. Now, I, I have been to Hull. That's how I know about the statue uh, of Philip Larkin. Um, I mean, there are worse places in the world and a big hello to our many listeners uh, in, in Hull. But do either of you have fixed views on the city itself? Have you ever been there, either of you? No. No. So I regret Quentin, to say... Quentin, I was really counting on you now because yes, neither have I. I, I do have lots of Yorkshire blood, but more from around Leeds and and uh, uh, other places, not on the coast. Oh, so. now, now, now we've opened up the Yorkshire schism uh, as well. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I have been to Hull. Uh, I, I will say that it would not necessarily be my first choice uh, as, as a city break, never mind the same city break for 32 years on the back. Give or take um, the, pan- sad the pandemic. Story. Maybe because he's barbarian. <laughs> why, why do you, why? So I was going to ask you if your regional insights here, uh, Tessa, are, are they somewhat predictable, regimented? Do, 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 they, do they like order and repetition? The Bavarians. We are having fun with stereotypes here. <laughs> yeah, no, but I was more thinking not so much. Maybe uh, the, you know, obviously this man likes repetition, but maybe. I I know that a lot of Germans and Austrians around me like to come to the north because of the north, because of, you know, consider Britain the north and sort of have a different landscape, a different sort of culture. They like sort of hanging out in pubs and going on windy beaches and these kind of things. And that that is sort of, you know, I always go from here, of course, south because we spend enough time here in the rain anyways. But for people who are in Bavaria, maybe this is a good it's alternative. A sort of drang yeah. nach Norden. Yeah, the drang nach Norden. But the sad thing about this gentleman is he says he loves the British breakfast, but he can't stand the sausages. Hey, that's a bit weird. I, I, yeah, but a bit of... 
but a, a Bavarian is obviously going to have extremely strong views on sausages. Yeah. Mm. And again, I feel like we should apologise to our many Bavarian readers for the, <laughs> the, 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 the stereotypes we are wheeling out here. But I mean, I, I am vaguely charmed by this story because I, I do like the idea of the person with the extremely niche holiday fixation. I am somewhat reminded of the Tunisian Mukhabarat minder who tailed me when I was working on an assignment in Tunisia many years ago, who, I'm not kidding about this, would not talk about anything but Stockton-upon-Tees, where, where he, so he claimed, I think, I don't know whether he just looked it all up and was trying to make conversation about Britain, but claimed he had spent the greatest year of his life in Stockton-on-Tees, which may tell us a great deal about what life is like uh, in the Tunisian intelligence services. Um, but, but do you see the point, Quentin, in holidaying in the same place Every damn year. Well, I suppose you get used to people and so on. My parents used to go on holiday to the same tiny little pension in the south of France in the in the winter time, sort of January, February, and they were greeted with great joy by the husband and wife who ran this little place. And they went back every year. They they had the same breakfasts, the same wonderful accent. Bonjour, Monsieur Quintin, as I was greeted when I went with them once. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of guilty here because I do most Christmases go back to Australia and visit the same places because that's where my family are. But I, Tessa, I do not have a particular favourite guest house in Wagga Wagga that I, you know, always reserve the same room in. Uh, have you ever been a creature of habit where holiday is concerned? Well, I think I do and I take it to a, to a even more bizarre stage. I actually move to places and then I come always back to them so and I think there's this thing in a person who goes uh, like this Bavarian tourist always to the same place it's because it feels like a home away from home mm. and I have experienced this uh, in Moscow in Jerusalem <coughs> in Brussels you know very different places but you feel you you go back to the things that you like you go to the coffee shops that you like you also specific things you know you would do you know, drink vodka in Moscow and hmm. have uh, a pain chocolat in Brussels. And these are the different things you do. And, and I have to say, for me, it's a little bit sad because at the moment, two of these places are war-torn. And at the moment, I wouldn't neither go to Jerusalem nor to Moscow except for work. Hull is an option. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Hello, Hull. <laughs> Tessa, we've got to go there. We will steal well, away and discover exactly. it. See, the, the, well, we do now have, of course, here on Monocle Radio, our own travel programme. I would certainly listen to the bit where Quentin and Tessa go to Hull. Um, talk to the editor. I'm sure we can work something out. Uh, Quentin Peel and Tessa Shishkovitz, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, we're heading to Paris, where a brand new Hauser & Wirth gallery has opened in a 19th century neoclassical building in the chic 8th arrondissement. The new venture marks the 20th outpost of the Swiss gallery, and Monocle's Robert Bound caught up with Louis Laplace and Christophe Cormoy, the architects who led the project, at the new spot. He began by asking Christophe for a potted history of the building. Yes, this building is known in Paris by um, the Parisians for having the one of the top radio network for 50 years after the war. Uh, Europe uh, number one, Europe 1, set up his office, its office here on Rue François Premier, next to the crossing with uh, Avenue Montaigne. And uh, so it was a f famous because you had all the politicians, the singers coming to the building for shows. And um, it was a quite popular radio for maybe 30 years. And in 2018, the building was sold to a real estate developer and they started to promote the building to m most probably at that time 
uh, rented to a fashion brand. So rehabilitation started with uh, some changes, implying that it would be set up for a fashion brand with uh, more square footage than that what, what we needed uh, for, for a gallery. Luis, I wanted to bring you in and we, we will look at the, the outside, we look at the edifice of this, beautiful, uh, of this beautiful building. We walk into that entrance hall and suddenly we're in this, the, the world of high ceilings that are a world away actually from the original dimensions of an hotel particulier. Can you tell us a bit about the meat and potatoes perhaps of this project and your broad ideas in terms of the scale and, 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 and the sort of wow factor as you walk into the new gallery? So when we came here, we only have the facade, and then inside, on the you know there was already like another project like going on, and like we sort of said, there was these old mezzanines and, and staircases everywhere, and then the whole space was very very different. So very good for fashion, but very bad for art display. So I think what we have to do is that we have to work, you know, almost like. Uh, upside down and, and, and walk, uh, work backwards and, and uh, empty the, uh, all these spaces that were like completely refurbished with, with a lot of like, you know, spaces and a lot of like things that were cluttering the, you know, the whole volume of the building. So what we tried to do is to recreate one single space downstairs, which has like probably something that was similar to what originally was and try to yeah recreate an, an, like an ambience like it feels very Parisian it feels very local it feels very true to the quartier and uh, and I think that the people you know comes in and, and already people are telling us but what did you do here they think that this was like always like this they don't realize actually there's like huge intervention that's sad isn't it that must be annoying for an architect although the work the, the subtle work is the is the work that lasts the longest perhaps Luis right true 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 um, and just finally um, and this is a question to both of you um, you mentioned the wow factor Christophe that kind of came from the client but I'm sure it's something that is very satisfying and fun to play with as architects and designers as well um, does this does this um, new house and worth in Paris does it contain any of your golden rules for building spaces for art I wonder and if so what, what are those kind of golden rules that this that this building encapsulates I think I think that what we always try to do is just to 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 do something that it's seamless flexible for the artist I think that allows artists just to do different types of shows and I think that's key to remain neutral and I think that it and yet it's our personality I think that you know nobody can deny that you are in Paris but at the same time we have to allow an artist as to express themselves with different uh, in different forms so I think it could be for sculpture it could be for you know for paint just st staircases right staircases <laughs> yeah it's like a, and that's also another part of our work that we do a lot of artist interventions with you know we invite artists to do in to intervene in architecture so we love to to work with them because they you know they helped me to break my academic rules probably than in a different way so I think it's more it's more interesting uh, so when that you didn't have that challenge and then you know the 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 world's cross architecture and art I think the spaces become some, um, yeah, a little more interesting yeah I like that idea Christoph uh, Luis's of artists allowing you to break your architectural rules with style um, what about for you maybe maybe Luis has answered the question what, what about for you does this contain any of your kind of key tenets your golden rules for building a space for art Yes, I mean, uh, Luis taught me architecture more than anyone else. And he always uh, told me that the key is the context. And here the context was defined by the facade, the classic facade, by the neighborhood, 
which is a kind of like you said before, an upscale, a very Parisian neighborhood. So we naturally we thought about uh, wooden floors, which in Paris it's not that common in a gallery. You see concrete floors in any context, and we'll we'll have been in a workshop in 11th arrondissement, in eastern part of Paris. Probably a concrete floor would have been adapted, but here we we thought the, the, it would be it would be more welcoming. To, and appropriate uh, to have a wooden floor, a classic wooden floor, in the context that we are given. So one of the golden rules is for for us to 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 to, to start from the context. And uh, Luis is often designed, defined as a silence, the silent architect. And here you you can see that some people can indeed think that the space has always been that way. And in a way, it's, 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 uh, it's, it means it's a success because people, f people feel the space naturally is, is here for art and, and that's fine. You know, I think the approach of the star architects that we have seen uh, in the last 30 years is, is, is not a unique one. It, there is not only one way to approach architecture. And, and I believe that our approach, which is uh, sensitive to sustainability, to conservation, and, and start from uh, the existing and try to preserve what we are uh, offered is, is, um, is more appropriate to our time. Christophe Comoy and Louis Laplace there in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound. That is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Quentin Peel and Tessa Shishkovitz. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 